This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Cardiology and Heart Surgery Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Michael Miller, Professor of Cardiovascular Medicine, Epidemiology, and Public Health at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Dr. Miller, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you very much, Laura. It's great to be here. Before we dive into the questions, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure. So, uh, you know, I've had a longstanding interest in uh, cardiovascular prevention. Um, and uh, basically, I, I got interested in my field when I was a medical student. Uh, when uh, at that time, there was the, uh, the recent discovery of the LDL receptor pathway. And in fact, one of one of our professors at my medical school uh, at Rutgers, uh, Dr. Kachadorian, uh, in fact, described the genetics of high cholesterol and fibroblast cells were used from one of his patients to identify this pathway uh, that ultimately led to the Nobel Prize. So uh, that got us, uh, at, least, at least myself and probably some other classmates, quite excited uh, and subsequent to that, I completed uh, my training and uh, focused, I did a fellowship in, in lipid metabolism and cardiovascular disease. And, and then joined the faculty at University of Maryland. I've been there since the early 90s, and my focus remains in cardiovascular prevention. Oh, fantastic. I'm excited for our conversation today. First off, what are your top three biggest issues in cardiology right now? Right, Laura. There, there are a lot of big issues. I, I think I'll just uh, discuss um, three that come to mind from my standpoint. Um, uh, you know, one, I think one of the biggest issues is to reduce hospitalizations for heart failure. So we have uh, the heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And and we're looking at about 6 million adults in the United States, probably equally distributed between these two groupings. We know that uh, there are high rates of rehospitalization and death in, this, uh, in these groups of patients. Um, and, and so it, it's really important to try to see what can be done to reduce the risk of hospitalizations, because we have patients that are coming into our uh, intensive coronary care units or or step-down units that are, are representing for a variety of reasons. Among the most common, of course, include uh, some uh, uh, issue related to noncompliance, whether it's diet or medical noncompliance. But, you know, if we can foster uh, education as it relates to uh, being compliant with diet and sodium restriction and being compliant with medicines, there's no reason why we cannot improve these rates. We have great medicines that are available. Uh, of course, there are beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, uh, the mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, uh, and, and some of the newer kids on the block that are really cool, the ARNIs, which are the angiotensin receptor and nephrolysin inhibitors. Uh, Entresto is, is the one that's um, uh, it's being used more commonly at our facility. And then I think the new addition that has really gotten cardiologists excited are these SGLT2 inhibitors uh, because um, this is kind of helping to bridge the gap between cardiologists and uh, endocrinologists or diabetes experts. And the reason is, is because the SGLT2 inhibitors, which are used in the treatment of diabetes, has also been shown to reduce hospitalization rates for heart failure uh, in not only our diabetic patients and even our patients at risk, 
uh, for recurrent cardiovascular events. So um, this class of therapy uh, is now being embraced by the cardiology community. And, and we're now using uh, uh, this class of agents in our patients who are recurring, uh, recovering from a heart failure exacerbation. So uh, this group of agents and diabetics used to treat heart failure with um, reduced ejection fraction. And there is even some suggestion that uh, this group of therapy may also be potentially useful in our patients who have heart failure with preserved EF. And there'll be uh, a large clinical trial uh, due to report out pretty soon that uh, hopefully will give us um, information in this group. Because as I said, uh, uh, preserved and reduced EF now account about 50-50. And we think that heart failure with preserved EFs will actually overcome the numbers of patients that have um, reduced EF. Um, just, just to point out uh, a second area that I think is really important also includes anti-diabetic medications. Uh, and that is how do we improve cardiometabolic risk in our highest risk patients? Many of whom are obese. So they're diabetic, they have the metabolic syndrome, they may have some degree of elevated triglycerides. And by the way, hypertriglyceridemia, which is one of my areas of interest, actually predates the development of diabetes. And we've seen over the years, many patients who are coming in with their primary abnormality of having some degree of elevated triglycerides, and then down the road, uh, insulin resistance and over diabetes develops. So, uh, talking about another group of agents that appears to help in weight losing uh, for many of these patients are the GLP-1 agonists. And uh, so uh, any way that we can improve cardiometabolic risk in these patients, I think will go a long way. Uh, You know, uh, a book I wrote several years ago for patients entitled Heal Your Heart. Uh, I expand upon some of the ways to help some of our overweight patients patients become more metabolically healthy. And so one of the things I I work, I go over with my patients, a good good rule of thumb is to find out what their weight was and baseline when they were, when they view themselves as in pretty good shape. And many of them, you know, will say, you know, when they were in in their early twenties, they were in, in decent shape. And then I use the number of about 10 pounds. That is they can gain up to 10 pounds in weight or up to two inches in waistline. In men, it's a little different in women, obviously, who are uh, having uh, babies in waistline. It's probably less of a predictor. But certainly in men, uh, two inches is a, is a good number for them to keep in mind. And if they're well above that, risk of cardiovascular disease does increase. And uh, so, you know, considering that the average American ha- is gaining somewhere about five to 10 pounds per decade, you know, I, I'd say probably a little bit more concentrated during the COVID uh, pandemic. You know, it's not hard to see how quickly weight, uh, significant weight gain occurs. So you take somebody who's maybe 30 years old and now they're 50 years old. Many of them have put on 20, 30 pounds. Uh, and of course, that may, in many of these individuals, cause some metabolic disturbances, whether it's insulin resistance and uh, hypertension and so forth. So uh, trying to get their weight down is, is, 
important because we know that losing five to 10% of body weight can convert a pre-diabetic individual back to normal, glyce uh, normal glycemia. You can improve characteristics of the metabolic syndrome, blood pressure, you know, improve to some extent hypertension and, and lipid abnormalities. And here again, the, these GLP-1 agonists for diabetes may play a role in the future in this regard. Now they're just being um, recognized and indicated for those with diabetes, but there are clinical trials ongoing to determine whether in a non-diabetic obese patient who loses weight that a GLP-1 agonist may prevent recurrent cardiovascular events. So stay tuned to that because I think this is an exciting area. Um, third big issue uh, as it relates to this topic are some of the uh, optimizing some safer, less invasive treatments across a, a range of cardiac diseases. And I'll give you the example of atrial fibrillation for which there is approximately 25% lifetime risk. Uh, and of course, this risk increases uh, as we age. Uh, and you know, in addition to the big concern about strokes, there's also recent indication that atrial fibrillation, uh, atrial fibrillation increases the risk of dementia. So um, it's important to try to get things under good control. We have uh, obviously the, the DOACs or the oral direct anticoagulants uh, that, are, that are superior to warfarin uh, with respect to events and bleeding risk. And we also have occlusive devices that can now be placed percutaneously, uh, especially for atrial septal aneurysms uh, to reduce the risk of clots. So these are some advances, the transcatheterine uh, aortic valve replacement uh, has now play in many of our patients who may not be great surgical candidates for aortic valve replacement. So this is another example uh, for optimizing safer and less invasive treatments in, to treat cardiovascular disease. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for going through that with us. I think, you know, as you mentioned, all three of those areas sound like really obviously important, but exciting uh, spaces as well to be innovating in. How do you see heart care evolving over the next 18 months or so? Yeah, you know, Laura, I just mentioned uh, a transcutaneous aortic valve replacement. I think we're going to see more at our facility at the University of Maryland. Uh, we have uh, a lot of uh, great operators. Uh, Dr. Gupta, for one, is doing a lot of cases and, and identifying individuals, older individuals, those who may be at high surgical risk for whom this is a safe, effective therapy. Uh, also, we have transcutaneous mitral valve repair uh, or mitral valve clips that are now being deployed for patients that have some degree of moderate to severe mitral regurge uh, that secondary to impaired artery function. Now, in a way, this experience with TAVR and, and now with clips is mimicking what we witnessed uh, decades ago when uh, stents were starting to be uh, more widely adopted, uh, even uh, stent, multi-vessel stent placement. Uh, and, and now is overtaking bypass surgery. Bypass surgery, obviously, is, is, is uh, the uh, treatment of choice for patients that have that are diabetic, that have uh, multivessel disease or occlusions that may be uh, technically difficult uh, for stent placement. Uh, I also can envision greater growth for the use of mechanical devices, LVADs, BIVADs, cardiac resynchronization, 
uh, for those patients with failing hearts uh, in whom optimal medical therapies may in themselves be insufficient. And then, of course, getting back to my area of interest of patients that have increased risk of coronary disease, there are new medications that are under investigation or are now being used for our our patients with abnormal cholesterol and triglycerides. I was involved, I was on a steering committee for the large reducer trial that used uh, icospentethyl, which is a highly purified uh, EPA or icospentenoic acid. And that was shown to reduce the risk of cardiovascular events by about 25% in patients um, that were diabetic or had existing coronary disease, but also had elevated triglycerides. So I do see greater uptake of uh, some of these medications uh, that have been proven to reduce cardiovascular risk. That's fantastic. And it really sounds like a lot of uh, innovative things you have going on. So I'm excited to see how that plays out over the next few years or so. What are you most excited about today? What makes you nervous? Yeah, Laura, this is, this is um, uh, again, a rapidly moving area in, in both respects. So in terms of being excited, some of the therapeutic advances I've already talked about, uh, but there are some processes that, uh, that we didn't have really effective treatments that are now available. I'll talk about two conditions. One is, um, and, and we're seeing a lot, again, a, a number of patients that may have not been identified in the past, uh, and the condition is TTR or trans, uh, or trans thyretin amyloid. So, so it's a type of amyloid that deposits in heart, nerves, other tissues. Uh, we can diagnose this condition using uh, technetium pyrophosphate tracer scan. And importantly, treatments are now available to slow progression of this disease. Uh, a second condition that I think that I'm quite excited about, uh, again, is my area, which is uh, treating very high cholesterol. When I got into this field a number of years ago, statins were not even available on the market. And so back in, in those days, we had gritty uh, bile acid resins. I call them gritty because they tasted really badly. Uh, and we also had niacin that caused a fair amount of flushing. We didn't have uh, a really great armamentarium to lower cholesterol, which we, we of course, have now. So in addition to statins, which are quite effective, uh, we have in our toolbox a number of other ways to drive LDL levels down. Uh, They include um, uh, PCSK9 inhibitors, cholesterol absorption inhibitors, and now the ATP citrate lyase inhibitors. Examples might include for PCSK9 inhibitors, evolocumab and alirocumab, the cholesterol absorption inhibitor being azetamide, and the ATP citrate lyase inhibitor being bempedoic acid. So when you take these medications onto a statin, you can really drive LDL levels down to levels we just dreamed about 30 years ago. The only way we were able back in the 1980s when I was starting to get involved in this was through um, plasmapheresis. So it was even before LDL apheresis. And that, and, and for that technology, you had to come in uh, once every two weeks and spend about two to four hours uh, uh, undergoing these procedures. Uh, but now with these medications that are injectable or by mouth, you can drive LDL levels way down so if you take somebody who has uh, the genetic condition familial hypercholesterolemia, 
where their LDL levels are often uh, well above 200, but not uncommonly in the three to 400 range, we can now bring those levels down with these therapies to below 100. Uh, and of course, lowering LDL translates into the reduced into reduced risk of either their first or a recurrent cardiac. So these are at least two areas that are getting me quite excited in the field, and as well as my colleagues. Now, what makes me nervous has more to do with avoiding burnout, and the burnout, of course, stems from the nickel and dime frustrating, time wasting tasks that has become increasingly overbearing in our practices. So a classic example just last week was placing, to me, what should have been a very straightforward order in our computerized EPIC system, uh, which seems sometimes to work against us rather than working with us. Uh, and I have to say, I miss the old paper charts in this regard. So anyway, I was, I, I was simply trying to order an imaging test and five different codes appeared for that imaging test. Five, um, same for carotid scans. And if you don't fill it out exactly properly, it doesn't get done. Uh, now, this is really not a complicated issue. There should just be one code for each test that should just take a few seconds to enter, but it doesn't. And so it, it's, it, it, you know, it's boggling, mind boggling to me. And we always, of course, seem to be up against the clock when it comes to seeing and treating patients. So we do need a simplified and much more user-friendly system. And that's what I thought Epic was supposed to do, right? When, when uh, years ago, the Epic systems first came out, uh, my understanding was that you should be able to communicate from one hospital to another with these systems, but they don't. And of course, there's no reason for this. So we wanna take the best care of our patients and to do this, we need a good communications and easy ways to get these things done. Uh, the other thing too, of course, are passwords, right? Uh, uh, I'm sure everybody has the same frustration. At my medical center, we have to constantly sign for every patient we see. So we're placing in the password every 20 to 30 minutes. And of course, over the course of the day, that is taking up a fair amount of time. I mean, the amazing thing is we have this advanced technology to allow us to use fingerprints, facial recognition, so why not incorporate these technologies? Uh, so that is our password. And I'm sure there might be some centers that are doing it. So hopefully this will take hold for the future. So our younger physicians in training can uh, really not spend a whole amount of time doing this stuff. Anyway, that's what makes me nervous. Got it. Yeah, yeah. I think that makes sense. And, you know, so interesting to think about um, how all the different aspects of the technology side of things, you know, can can really uh, change the processes and you know make it a challenge, like you said, to avoid burnout and um, really feel like you know as a, a physician and a surgeon, you're making a difference with the patient. Now, uh, before yeah, before we wrap up our conversation, can you share three pieces of advice for emerging physician leaders today? Sure, Laura, be happy to. Um, and, I, you know, and I would say this advice transcends beyond physician leaders, um, but probably just a good, a good, uh, good, good advice. And that is, you know, many of our leaders are spending uh, many hours working, so 16 um, or more hours a day in many instances. So, you know, my overarching advice would be to carve out non-work-related time 
we need to recharge. So each of us needs to recharge on a daily basis. It doesn't have to be a whole lot of time, um, but we do need to recharge. We need to spend time with our families uh, without any electronic devices. You know, at our dinner time, when I am home and we have a family dinner, the electronic devices are gone, you know, just like in the good old days. Um, and, um, you, know, you know, it's important to be able to, to separate out non-work from work-related uh, issues. And, and then finally, uh, I would say some of the notable characteristic of some of the physician leaders that I've worked with over the years goes beyond their dedication, passion, and, and some of the skills that they do have is that they are really good listeners, they respect the opinions of others, and they focus on working as a team. So I think uh, several of these uh, pieces of advice are good for emerging physician leaders, but good for, for the rest of us as well. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really fantastic discussion. I look forward to connecting with you again in the future. Thank you, Lois. It's been a pleasure.